Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Warning. The following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica, and as always, I'm joined by my favorite gal pal, Tara. Hey, spooksters. Today, we are doing another installment of our OJ case. We are hoping that you guys are at least liking to listen to this Mm -hmm. because you better strap in because it's going to be a minute. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of parts. (laughs) (laughs) We just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. So just so that you know, that's what's going to happen. But before we get in, we got to take care of some stuff like where you can find us on the interwebs. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We refuse to call it X because it just seems weird now. (laughs) Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. If you want to be part of our very close-knit community that we have online, we have a Facebook group. It's Three Spooked Girls Official. It's our logo with like a pink background with blood splatter. It's super cute. I only say that because I made it. It is super cute. Thank you. And we do book club in there this month we're reading i think it's called not your ex's hex Mm -hmm. something like that Mm -hmm. i should know i picked it (laughs) (laughs) just very rare for me to pick the book we also do lots of fun things in there like we do the discussion post people post just different things we've talked about how what people are gonna be for halloween it's just a great little slice of the internet where you can come hang out with a bunch of other spooksters and just feel at home it's great It's where we announce stuff like our secret Satan and all of that stuff. So, you know, it's the place to be. Yeah. 
You can also support the show if you'd like to by going to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls or hit the link tree below in the show notes or in the show notes. I don't know why I say below because I guess, yeah, it's below in the show notes. Just working things out of my head today, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> so you can take that and it goes to Patreon for a little as a dollar a month. You get bonus episodes. We have a giant backlog. If you have gotten through all of your three spooked girls, here on our main feed and you're like, I want more. I want more episodes. We have like mm-hmm. four to five years worth of shit there. <laughs> yeah. And lately our our bonus episode each month, like the last two months has been has been video. So mm-hmm. some fun, some fun things that we do there. So definitely check that out. We are both on threads and on Instagram. My handle is Jessica Bear. It's all in the show notes. I'm just gonna say this, guys. Our things are in the show notes. So like, it gets real confusing. But we're both on threads. I am trying a lot better at threads than I was ever at Twitter. <laughs> I posted same. more than I ever have in like the 10 years I had a Twitter. Mm-hmm, I posted more. Yeah, I yeah, do too. On threads. And I do like that because it's interchangeable with Instagram. I can yeah. do that. So You can definitely follow me if you want to follow my personal page on Instagram. That's fine. I don't accept friend requests on Facebook unless I know you. Even then, there are people who I've known for a while still sitting (laughs) on (laughs) because I'm really bad at it. Totally fine on Instagram. Tara has an amazing TikTok. If you have not checked it out yet, you should definitely go and check it out. It's spooky underscore sleuth. She does lots of fun things and, you know, she's branching out into uh, some other fun stuff now as well. Like, so her like tried and true true crime stuff, her paranormal stuff, and then some funsy stuff that you guys should definitely check out. I watch her TikToks because (laughs) I love my best friend and she's entertaining (laughs) as hell. (laughs) So you should definitely do that, too, especially if you like us. She's half of us, so you can watch her TikTok. I don't have a TikTok that has activity on it. Mm-hmm. I should probably do things, but like, meh. my life is boring. I go to work. I come home. I do the podcast. This is my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with that, we are going to dive in. Oh, before we d- dive into this episode, mm-hmm. as of right now, you're hearing this. Secret Satan is done. Just so you know, uh-huh. you yeah. missed you missed it. But you can still get in on some fun, spooky season stuff because we have our annual, well, it is our fifth Potiversary live show. It's going to be Sunday, September 17th, which is the official five years of when we first published an episode Mm -hmm. many moons ago, five years ago. And it was, it was crazy. We're going to be doing a, we're going to be doing a redo of our Waverly Place, or Waverly Place, sorry, that's a different thing. <laughs> Not our Waverly <laughs> Hills Asylum episode. It was the first one Tara and I ever did together, just the two of us. So mm-hmm. if you want to hear it, and the live shows are fun because you never know what the fuck's going to come out of my mouth. Oh my, yeah, this is true. <laughs> like you guys, this is a very curated, ep- these are very curated. <laughs> Sometimes I say shit not. and Tara's like, yeah, there's no there's no editing on the live show. So no. definitely come and hang out. There are tickets still available. Mm-hmm. Check it out in the link tree. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. So now with that, I'm going to hand it over to Tara, and she's going to tell us the background on one Mr. Orenthal James Simpson. Yes. Okay. So 
most of you guys probably are familiar with this case, but if you are on the younger end or maybe you're you're not familiar, just a trigger warning ahead of time. There is going to be a lot of domestic violence discussion pretty much here on out the rest of the series, however many episodes mm-hmm. it ends up being. A million, pretty much. <laughs> pretty sure it's going to be our biggest series, but we'll see. I don't know. Scientology may beat that one day. I know. I've held off. But not, <laughs> oh, now spoilers. I don't care. That's going to come one day. We don't know when. But I did want to start off. There will be resources in the show notes if you or somebody you know is in a domestic violence top type of situation. And the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233, and they are 24-7. All right, so Orenthal James Simpson, he was born on July 9th, 1947 in San Francisco, California, to Eunice and Jimmy Lee Simpson. He has two sisters and one brother. His mother was a hospital administrator, and his father worked at the Federal Reserve Bank. Now, that couple would split in 1952, and OJ was raised by his mom. And fun fact, I found out, Jimmy, his dad, was also a well-known drag queen in San Francisco. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. And he came out later in life, though sadly, he passed away from AIDS in 1986. At the age of two, OJ contracted rickets, leaving him pigeon-toed and bow-legged, and he had to wear a pair of shoes that were connected by an iron bar for a few hours every single day to help in his recovery, and he had to do this until he was five. So he did this for three years. So he did the Forrest Gump shoes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Forrest, run. (laughs) You said it, not me. That's fine. I'd... Guys, you're going to learn really quickly Jessica gives no fucks about O.J. Simpson. No, I mean, no. Apparently, O.J. had no idea his name was Orenthal James because literally everybody called him O.J. from birth. He found out this was his legal name when a teacher called him by his name in third grade. So that's a like a mind fuck. And it's reported he got this name because of one of his aunts who that was the name of like her favorite actor from France. Uh I was like, that's interesting. Now, OJ started getting into trouble early in his life. At age 13, he joined a gang called the Persian Warriors. One fight landed him at the San Francisco Youth Guidance Center for nearly a week in 1962. And in high school, his athletic abilities that he's very well known for began to shine. He attended Galileo High School and was on the football team, of course. And his grades were not great to get him picked up by a major college football program, like one of the main ones at first. So he even though he was like in high school, he was like all state or something or all cities like he Mm. was he was breaking record. He was doing all the things. You know what I mean? So he went to the City College of San Francisco and played there and was there for a little bit. And then after that, he was he gained admission into USC and brought onto their team as a halfback. During his freshman year of college, he married his high school sweetheart, Marguerite L. Whitley. And OJ's infidelity and his ego was said to strain their relationship. Despite the struggles that Marguerite and OJ had, they ended up having three children together. There was Arnell, Jason, and Aaron. 
But sadly, Aaron passed away at the age of two in 1979. Now, Marguerite herself has maintained a private and low profile for the most part. She's known, mainly known for being ex-wife of OJ. Mm -hmm. Her last public appearance was in 1995. She did an interview on 2020 with Barbara Walters. Oh. And OJ and Mar- go out big. Right? OJ, I'm sure she got a nice check for that, too. Get your coin. Fuck it. So during OJ and Marguerite's 12-year marriage, there was no reports of physical abuse from the hand of OJ. But according to court documents, in 1980, after their divorce, she refused to move out of their Brentwood house and was the one who, quote, threatened him with physical abuse, libel, and slander and to call the police, end quote. And during the interview with Barbara Walters, she said, and this kind of like rubbed me not the right way whatsoever. She said, quote, if he did, he would have got a frying pan to the side of his head. There's just no way I would allow that to happen to me. And I'm just like, I don't know. Maybe I was overthinking it. But I was like, man, if that was like a dig at Nicole, like you're fucking trash too then. But I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I can see why that is like kind of a dig. Like I didn't let this abuse happen to me. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's also like, fuck that shit. I would fucking smack him in the head and dip. Like that's also what it could be. Or it's her overcompensating. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, probably that too. Who knows? While at USC, he set team records for yards gained by rushing in 1967, 1,415 yards, 1968, 1,709 yards. He was named All-American for 1967 and 68, played in two Rose Bowl games, and he won the Heisman Trophy in 1968, which is like best collegiate Mm -hmm. player out of everybody in the whole season. He was also a member of a world record-setting 440-yard relay team. That's interesting. Right? I was like, that's, that's cool. Even though I don't like him, but whatever. Okay, so he had the nickname Juice, obviously because of OJ, but also because they said of because of his energetic runs, like I'm guessing he was just like, you know, like an energizer bunny type of thing. Like he just kept going all the time, I'm assuming. Uh-huh. He was the number one draft choice for the Buffalo Bills in 1969. I'll just say, like, this dude had, like, a really cool life, and then he done fucked it up. Yep. And apparently the following year, the American Football League, which the Buffalo Bills were a part of, merged with the NFL. For those not in the U.S., like, our our football, like, Mm -hmm. franchise? I don't know what that's, I don't know what it's called. (laughs) League? (laughs) Yeah. It's literally the National Football League. I'm an idiot. It's fine. (laughs) Love you, though. It's fine. No, I was trying to think of like another word and I couldn't. And the Bills were also a member of the American Football Conference, AFC, when he set a single season record for yards gained rushing 2003 in 1973. So the Bills were like never a they weren't like one of the top teams during his time. But people Mm -hmm. loved him, so he'd bring the crowds to the Bills. Right. But he apparently had some knee injuries while he was on the Bills, and he would be traded to the 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers, in 1978. And then he retired the year after that in 1979. Fun fact, 
1975 record of most touchdowns scored in a season, which was 23, was a record for like a long time. It didn't get broke until 1983. That, that is a significant chunk yeah and he had another one he had a record in 1973 for like it says season rushing record for like most yards gained and that record stood until 1984 so that one stood 11 years Mm -hmm. he led the afc in rushing yardage four times 72 73 75 76 and his career total yards gained is 11,236 that was the second in the all-time rankings at the time of his retirement. And as mentioned briefly in episode one, he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1985. So OJ kept going after. So after he retired from football in 1979, he turned what a lot, I feel, of professional athletes kind of pivot to. He became a sportscaster, and mm-hmm. a lot of them do that. And then he also became an actor. He did plenty of projects. He did some while he was still an athlete, most notable being playing a man framed for murder by the police in 1974. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Later, he appeared in The Naked Gun in 1988 and its sequels, playing a dim-witted assistant detective and regularly appeared in commercials, on TV, like he was the Hertz guy for a while all kinds of stuff and you know like i said newscaster he did monday night football and all of that stuff too in episode one we talked about how nicole and oj met right so refresher Mm -hmm. in case you guys forgot they met when she was waitressing like brand fucking new at the daisy and you know he got divorced from Marguerite. They dated for quite a few more years. Then they got married and we went through all that. But now we're going to circle back to the not so good stuff. So one of the big conversations that kind of come up during this is the abuse throughout the marriage. Now, this is kind of like I wouldn't say jumping ahead because it is during like this t- this part of the timeline. But like after her death, I think we mentioned it in episode one. They found her diary, and she wrote all kinds of stuff. You can look up all the documents and everything, too, if anyone is interested as well. Yeah. But we're going to kind of talk about some of the abuse during their marriage. So if that is triggering to you, I would say probably skip a bit. Or, I don't know, we got other fun episodes, too, if this is not for you. So. They weren't even married yet. So in 1979, so they like they got together in 77. She wrote about the first time he abused her physically. And she said and in her diary, it says first time he beat me up after Lewis and Nadine Mary anniversary party started on the street corner of New York City, Fifth Avenue at about 9 p.m. Threw me on the floor, hit me, kicked me. We went to the hotel where he continued to beat me for hours and I continued to crawl for the door. And she does a lot of details with this. So another entry read, smashed my car, white Mercedes, with a baseball bat after visiting Tommy Hughes. He greeted me at the gate. I was too afraid to get out of the car. He did it because I was late. This was around 7 or 8 p.m. 
OJ's version of that story is so different. Oh my god. Okay, so Jess already finished it, but I'm still listening to it, the If I Did It book, because the Goldman's Mm -hmm. profit off this, not his ass. Right. (laughs) He's just... Like, the Mm. way... Have you you got to the part in that? Yeah, I did. And he was just very cash. I was seeing red. (laughs) I just, like, my whole brain went the fuck that doesn't make any sense his story made zero sense what he likes to do is blame her for everything and basically was like it's her fault i did it so then after i said well i'm gonna pay for it anyway i just smashed it more like bitch what shouldn't you not want to smash it because you are paying it (laughs) right and then the security guard came and was like is there a problem and nicole felt foolish Ah." yeah and then we just they left and we just looked at each other and laughed. I like, I'm like, just what world no. is he living in? That didn't happen yeah. that way. No, 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 no. There was a later entry from 1986 that read Eric and Val Von Watts. Listen to music at my place on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. After we finished our drinks, we left. He beat me up so bad at home, tore my blue sweater and blue socks completely off me. Went to the hospital in Wilshire, pretending it was a bicycle accident. And there was a lot of entries from 1988. So on January 10th, at the time, Nicole was two months pregnant with their son. And he demanded she have an abortion and aimed a gun at her. And she wrote, quote, OJ was drunk. He never let up. Get out of my fucking house, you fat ass liar. And I packed, and that's the end of his quote, I packed a few things together. He locked the door again. I buzzed. Do you really have to go tonight? Their daughter, Sydney, said. And she was apparently like super sleepy. And he says to Nicole, not their kid, let me tell you how serious I am. I have a gun in my hand. Get the fuck out of here. So there's that. Another time he beat her in 1988 was because of, quote, how a gay man kissed their son and it caused Simpson to flip out. She wrote, OJ threw me against walls in our hotel and on the floor, put bruises on my arm and back. The window scarred me. Thought he would throw me out, like, of the window. And also during their relationship, a former LAPD officer, John Edwards, talks. He talked about how the following, like, he went and how badly Nicole was beat after she called 911. You guys probably have heard of that. It is super fucking heartbreaking. The transcripts and everything are very accessible. The police officer said, quote, a woman came running out, a tall blonde woman, and she was and she was yelling, he's going to kill me. And I asked who she said, OJ. And I said, OJ Simpson. She told him, you've been up here eight times already and you've done nothing about it. That's the scary reality of that, especially because he's like he was such a well-loved celebrity. Let's be fucking real. Nicole had a one inch cut on her upper left lip, a swollen right forehead, and her right eye was starting to form a black eye on it. The officer said, I could see on her face she had a mark like a hiking boot. She looked like she had been kicked in the head. And I look over my head and here comes OJ Simpson right here where the gay is and he's yelling. I mean, screaming. I don't want you around here anymore. I got two women and I don't want you around here anymore is what he's like yelling at nicole and this cop's like right here that's like shows how like no fucks he gives yeah oh my god in the book it's like 
his spin on it is that that's not what he meant by that, that he was concerned about his kids and that because she was like, I want my kids, I want my kids type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was saying, I have two women. And he meant like his housekeeper and his assistant to help him with the kids. And I was like, bullshit. The only reason you're saying that is because it was literally documented by a police officer. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you would have just been like, Nicole, it's crazy. Yep, exactly. So OJ got arrested for spousal battery. He pled no contest to these charges, and he was sentenced by a judge to barely a slap on the wrist, in my opinion. He was given 120 hours of community service and two years probation. And on top of that, he he was also... Yeah, he didn't do that. He was also fined $200 and ordered OJ to donate $500 to a shelter for battered women. Pennies to this man. After sentencing, they issued a statement and said, quote, our marriage is as strong as the day we were married, if not stronger. Yeah. And then apparently Mr. Rob Kardashian read a letter later on from him saying, I took the heat New Year's 1989 because that's what I was supposed to do. I did not plead no contest for any other reason but to protect our privacy and was advised it would end the press hype. At times I have... (laughs) I hate him. At times, I have felt like a battered husband or boyfriend, but I love her. See, that's the thing that OJ likes to do, which is like classic abuser narcissism, is spin it so it's poor me. I'm a martyr. I fucking, I let myself have this on my record so you guys would stay out of our business. Like, no, fuck you. You got the charges because you beat the hell out of her. Like, come right. the fuck on. Come I mean, the fuck on. And the thing is, is like, OJ will say, I've only ever hit Nicole one time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sir, that makes you a domestic violence person. Exactly. That's one time too many. You hit her. You could have not hit her. But there have been, yeah, no. I just, yep. I don't like him. So, also, a little other tidbit about that case. The deputy city attorney, Robert Pingle, said in an interview that because of the severity of the beating, he had requested that OJ serve at least 30 days in jail and undergo an intensive year-long program for men who batter their wives. Instead, he was able, on top of all the other stuff, allowed to seek counseling from a psychiatrist of his choice. And right. that was like a joke. And it wasn't even in person. And it was like on the phone. It was, it was not. It was a farce. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it no, just was. He had... He had a psychiatrist who prescribed him pills. That's what he had. Yeah. And experts have, I mean, all over the decades, people have reanalyzed this case. But like, you know, people who are experts in domestic violence cases, they have said that like, that should not have been a thing. The the punishment, I say that with air quotes, that he got. Because none of that would have worked. It would have been really ineffective. And they've done studies that actually... If there are people who are abusers and such like in these situations, if they mm-hmm. were in OJ's position and they do want to seek help and they don't want to do these th- horrible things ever again, you know, those kind of people, they have found that they benefit better in like group therapy versus one on one. And that's much more effective or like an inpatient type of thing, not just this cash. Let's call this psychiatrist and get a prescription shit. Right. It's just OJ's way of being in control. Mm -hmm. Now, the good thing about this being, like, I guess the good thing about this 
involving someone who is a celebrity is like there is so much media coverage on this. It's literally insane. But I did find a Washington Post article. They talked to a few of their friends and we have some quotes from them that this toxic situation, this relationship, it wasn't a secret. People knew. People knew. They knew. They may not have known the extent and I'm not blaming anybody, obviously, but it's like people knew there was something up for sure. So from Kathy Lee Crosby, this is somebody that knew OJ for 15 years at the time of her interview. And this was like all in the 90s, obviously. Mm-hmm. And she said the relationship was passionate, full bodied. They really, truly cared about each-, each other. It was also volatile. She also like, I'm like, oh, OK, Kathy, you're just trying to be like, I got the scoop for you because she tried to bring up also like when they kind of tried to reconcile for two seconds but then didn't obviously because like she mentioned that and she was like but they realized it wasn't going to work according to oj they tried to reconcile for a whole year yeah bullshit okay you know oj doing the doing the smart thing doing the wrong thing more like jesus other friends were much more honest and put it more harshly So basically, they said Nicole realized that her former husband was the same obsessively jealous, possessive and violent man that he had been during their marriage. As a result, she called to halt their attempt to reconcile, provoking him to even worse flights of anger. When he was around, she would tense up. She watched every move she every move she made and every step she took. She was aware of his reactions to everything. When he wasn't around, she was a direct smart person. But when he was around, she was scared to death of him. End quote. What's interesting about this one is this friend did not have her name mentioned. She's just referred to as a female friend during the article, which I'm like, I totally get that. Right. Because she probably knows OJ and OJ probably knows her and mm-hmm. seems Protecting like herself. Real- mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she insisted on being like an, an anonymous source, basically. She goes on to say she in regards to Nicole, she wasn't perfect. She was a person. She could be thoughtless and patient and, like me, sometimes had a mouth like a sewer, but she had character and she was dedicated to her kids. The worst thing he would do is threaten to take away the kids. And they go on to say that five years ago, again, putting us probably like in the 80, late 80s, I would say, while OJ and Nicole were still married. Oh, no, no. It'd be like in the 90s, too. While they were still married, they had lunch. He had lunch with nightclub singer Jennifer Young and some other people at La Scala in Beverly Hills. According to Jennifer, Nicole spotted them and flew into a rage. As the two left, Nicole driving a black Mercedes. I'm just laughing because I'm like, yeah, I would be fucking pissed, too. She screamed son of a bitch at her husband because I mean, like, it's no secret. He's a fucking (laughs) cheater at this point. Right. So, but of course, she's like, you know, she's giving the flip side. And even though, like, we have our opinion on it, we're going to share this info too. She says, quote, We were just walking. The next thing you know, out she comes, out of the blue, flipping out, screaming, If you're going to expletive, cheat on me. Why don't you pick someone who's pretty? She's a expletive, ugly dog, Young said. She says that Simpson remained calm and says, quote, It wasn't him that had the temper that day. It was her. So fun fact, Jennifer, not that you're listening, but people like Simpson, that's that's what they do. They act like all cool and calm and collected to outsiders, but then they act like a fucking piece of shit behind closed doors. It's not rocket science. Right. 
a woman who knew Nicole for four years, saw her all the time because both of their kids went to the same private school, said, quote, everybody was doing this happy expletive about probably shit about how nice OJ was, but he had a ferocious temper. The physical abuse was pretty constant. Everyone knew about it. She was covered in bruises, and I'm not trying to exaggerate this. The fights never stopped. When they separated, he stayed in the big house on Rockingham Ave, and she moved into a house on Gretna Green Way. And that, like, the police are called there numerous times. And then when she got her other house on Bundy, that is where the murder took place. So multiple places she lived, she was calling for help. Right. And same lady says at one school function, she was walking down a hallway and he came after her. He grabbed her so hard she almost went down. And Sydney, their daughter who was holding Nicole's hand, did go down. He was shouting at her and it was one of the most frightening things I've ever seen. And she also stated, you know, this person and other people have stated, you know, Nicole didn't like she didn't really talk about it. This person says she only would talk about problems with OJ when she was having a really bad day. She wasn't someone who would sit down and just kind of like bare her soul. Mm -hmm. And even then, she was not going to feel sorry for herself, end quote, is what that friend said, which I'm like, no, because she was a boss ass bitch. It's true. She was. Of course, these sources and stuff are asked, like, why would she stay with OJ? Like, that's always a fucking question. And it drives me insane. They're like, why would she stay so long? You know, if he was horrible, blah, blah, blah. And the friend says, quote, I don't think she had a great sense of self-worth. She wasn't that well educated because he made her quit fucking college and she didn't have any particular job skills. She was too old to be a model and she felt and she was trapped. He always used money to force her to do whatever he wanted, money for the kids, money for whatever. And people noticed that after she split from OJ, like she blossomed as a person. Even her like fashion sense, they said like when she was with OJ, you know, she was being like that young trophy wife, all done mm-hmm. up, all that thing. And I just thought it was like funny, though, because they were like, once she broke it off, she began dressing a lot more casual, a lot less sequins. I was like, that's that's very specific. <laughs> well, it's probably because like, well, she'd probably wearing like dresses and shit, you know, or like, when they go out. Yeah, like, because he's a football player and he needs a flashy wife. Yeah. So basically, you know, she was able to start living for herself. Now, Nicole and OJ finally, or she filed for divorce from him on February 25th of 1990. And she, you know, she moved into her own place with her own kid, with the kids. And she was supposed to be having like a great, things were going good for her. Like she was setting up her own life by herself. And they finally came to an agreement in 1992. It was over two years. Oh, my gosh. It was like almost three. And basically, Nicole received a payment for $433,750. And then courts ordered $10,000 a month in child support to be paid to Nicole. They would have joint custody, but she would be the primary caregiver. And she was said to have them like... 90% of the time. But it makes sense because like at this time he was traveling a lot because he was doing like the acting, the newscaster Mm -hmm. stuff, the hurt stuff. Like he was going all over the place. So even if he wasn't an abusive person and like it would just make sense for her to keep the kids because he's gone all the time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting in their divorce decree. It also says, quote, each party shall have the right to live separate and apart from the other free of any interference or harassment. 
interesting. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. However, during that imaginary whole year that OJ says, so after their divorce in 1992 to 1993, you know, there are, Nicole does think about it. And I mean, like, you have to think too, she was with him a long time. She has such a big, this is the person she was with her whole adult life until this point, first of all. Right. And obviously, like, she loved him, you know, and they had a family and stuff. So it's like, she obviously deserved so much better, but it's like, it's understandable, I guess. You know what I mean? Unfortunately. But thankfully, that didn't fucking happen. OJ continued to be OJ and be abusive. He also appeared, aka he was, he was angry. He was pissed. Nicole was dating. He tries to act like he was unbothered and he would sit on the phone with her for hours and be like, I was like one of her girlfriends. She she would just tell me all the things. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, OJ. No, she didn't. <laughs> I'm like, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't either. Like this whole concept of like, she was like, is he going to like me for me? I'm like, "Mm." Mm -mm. OJ, do you think I'm dumb? No one believing that she confided in you. Get the fuck out of here. Because literally he got fucking pissed Mm -hmm. because she had a picture of an old boyfriend in some random photo album. But she's going to sit and be able to talk to you two to three. Oh, he was like, she would call me. She got into the habit of calling me two to three times a day and we would just talk and talk and talk. And it was mainly about like her dating life and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, shut up. This did no, no fucking way. It just it just didn't like it doesn't make any sense. Like that would not that's not. No. Especially like when he's like and then she wanted me back and was like begging me and was like, oh, Jay, like it's his but I already thing. don't like he he's position in this. Oh, my God, guys. Yeah. He's like positioning that. Nicole's like fawning over him and like trying to get back with him and all this shit. But I moved on because she left and I thought she didn't love me anymore. Blah, blah, blah. Right. But then she was like, and and like one of the things that I understood is, you know, he's talking in the book and I believe this happened is like they spent like the first Christmas of their divorce together with the kids. Mm -hmm. A lot of married or divorced couples do that. Yeah. I mean, like, I'll just be completely honest, like the first Christmas after I split with my ex, we did Christmas jointly for our daughter. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't think that's weird at all. No. To be honest with you, I think that's like, that's like a good thing, I think, for the kids, regardless of the adult situation, because it's like, it's showing with all of, you have to think in the kids perspective, like all of that change that's happening for Mm -hmm. them, you know? Like, at least they can have this one thing that'll kind of, like, give them some sense of security that'll hopefully, you know, make it so they can still enjoy the holidays, you know, things like that. So, like, I understand it from, like, my own stuff as far as that goes. Right. It just, like, the way his narrative is that Nicole obviously loved me because she was still around. I just... She was around for her kids. If everyone else's story is... The same. And, and yours, yours is, is the different? only one that's different. Hmm. Yours is wrong. Exactly. To this day, I cannot figure out if OJ just like, if, if there's something like not connecting up up top, like he's just like walking through life thinking Delulu. that things are- He lives on Delulu Island. <laughs> yeah. Like for real. It's like, I'm like, is he having some sort of like different alternative- world that's happening around him because a lot I do think a lot of celebrities get into that where they think things just happen for them but because they don't realize that other people do it for them Mm -hmm. 
But this is a lot of like hard sell shit. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is with people like him, they really, I swear they do live in this kind of like delusional bullshit. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. He's living in OJ land. And unfortunately, we're here and we're dragging you guys along for that ride. So, (laughs) but there was like a, like a tape of a phone call. And apparently he was also pissed about like a National Enquirer article two or something. And of course, let's just take it out on fucking poor Nicole. Right. And like we've mentioned, Kris Jenner is all up in this case because she was friends with them. And in the Washington Post article that I was grabbing all these quotes from, Kris Jenner, of course, contributed as well. And she says, at the end of Nicole's life, I think she finally was at a place where she knew she had to be more vocal with what was going on and she was in trouble. The one thing she would tell all of us by the time, you know, it got to the level that it was, she said, he's going to kill me and he's going to get away with it. And that's so fucking heartbreaking. Ugh. I can't. I can't. Just, mm. It's. He was OJ fucking Simpson. Yeah. He was larger than life personality. People loved him. Mm hmm. Because they didn't know. They didn't know yeah. he was, of course. And I mean, and thinking of the time frame, like, OJ wouldn't have gotten away with the abuse he got away with with Nicole if it was happening today. Mm hmm. There's too many people. There are too many cameras. And he literally was in that era of he was on TV and he was in the public eye a lot because there were tabloids and things like that. But as a tabloid journalist, you had you to dig. Yeah, there was no internet. There was no social medias. There, like you know, there was some internet, but well, you know what I mean. Like it's not like now where you can go like fucking creep their goddamn Instagram or whatever. You know what I mean? Pull up like stuff so easily. And you have to even think, too, right. like, would the average person have, did the average person have internet in 1993? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. No. I don't know. But I was two years old. So they did a lot of appearances together, too. Like, after she went, the whole family went to the Naked Gun 33 and a third. They went to the Final Insults premiere in 93. They actually, Nicole and OJ went to Mexico with... Chris and Caitlyn Jenner and four of the whatever kids were born then. So I'm guessing like the Kardashian kids, because I don't think the Jenners were born yet. No. no. So it was, younger than me. yeah, it's the the sisters and then Rob and Rob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Kardashians. And I've yes. seen the photo like they're all in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But by May of 94, Nicole was done with OJ's shit. She was done with it. And by that summer, when she got back, she started looking for a new house. And she worked with a real estate agent named Jean McKenna. And Jean had said, I remember walking up the hill there with her. We were smoking. Nobody smokes in Brentwood. So we used to sneak it together. And she was saying like she couldn't really believe it. She said, I can really do this. I can lease the house and move. I can really do this. And that's where I hand it off to Jessica. This whole thing just makes me so fucking sad. Yes. So for my part to make sense, I kind of have to talk about this the the book and the delusion that is one Mr. Yeah, or Paul Jameson's in. Oh my god. Oh yeah, because you have the actual book book too. I I got I listened on Audible. 
I did. I, I listened on audio audible as well. Yeah. It's free if you have a it's it's not sponsored, but it's free if you have a, like it's in the free library. If you have audi- mm-hmm. what is it? Audible I would Plus? suggest li- like if you guys want to listen to it, it's a mm-hmm. very the ghost author or the ghost writer. Very good. He I think he captured the like the tone of OJ. Oh, a th- with oh my God. making yeah. this yeah. sound intelligible. So like. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to interrupt you. I just, I, I, I never thought about the process because I'm sure you're going to talk about it. But like, yeah, I never thought about it. But then when he explained it, I was like, oh, that makes so much fucking sense. Duh. <laughs> right. I just, it wasn't something I thought about because it's like, why would I ever have a ghostwriter for anything? I wouldn't. Right. <laughs> so we're just going to skip ahead to 2006, seven for a minute. Guys. Yes, yes, yes. Because that's when the book came out, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just so that you guys know, if you don't know the story of OJ, I don't know where don't you Don't read it. Slash listen to that first. Listen to us first. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I literally like I was talking about this with people at work. If I knew nothing about this case, and this is the first book I picked up, I would be like, wow. Okay, mm-hmm. Mr. Simpson, mm-hmm. you were a great husband. You were a great provider. This book is basically O.J. Simpson, I'm perfect porn. Mm -hmm. This is his telling of a life. And he looks back on his life and goes, wow, I was a great, like, he talks about his his first marriage in this, like, Mm -hmm. way that it's like, it just wasn't working and we were pregnant. Because literally, when he meets Nicole, the baby comes. It's just after his 10th anniversary. Yeah. It's literally that morning as he tells it in the book. Mm-hmm. And he goes to buy, her name is Marguerite, right? Mm-hmm. Goes to buy her a piece of jewelry. Goes yeah. to Daisy, the Daisy for breakfast, and meets one Miss Nicole Brown mm-hmm. and falls madly in love and decides, okay, my marriage is over because I've met this woman. Mm-hmm. Because the night before, Marguerite was like, set her fork and knife down and was like, OJ, this ain't working. Yeah. And I'm five months pregnant. And he was like, oh, my God, my wife is five months pregnant. I don't believe you didn't know your (laughs) wife was pregnant. You already had two children. Yeah. It's not like it was a surprise. Like, come on, OJ. Come on, OJ. You know how this works. (laughs) But anyway, so the process of this book is a woman by the name of Judith Eden. She worked with like a like an adjacent company with HarperCollins. And fun fact, she used to work for the National Enquirer, which is how she met Pablo, because Pablo, during mm-hmm. a hard time in his life, worked for Probably. National Enquirer. I get it. You got to pay your bills. Yeah. She contacts Pablo and goes, hey, OJ Simpson has decided he's going to write a book. It's a confession. How this book is presented to everyone in the world to get it signed off is OJ is going to sit down with a ghostwriter and confess to the murders because we have double jeopardy in this country. Mm-hmm. So he could say whatever. He can now. literally tomorrow he can get on TikTok and be like, I killed them. This is how I did it. Everything. Can you imagine? Oh my God. Well, the world would literally crash. Like TikTok would crash. Oh my God. Yeah. And there's nothing anyone can do because he's been acquitted of this crime. Spoilers if you don't know. <laughs> you, you find it out now. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
This book is a love letter to O.J. Simpson from O.J. Simpson. It's a love letter to himself. Mm-hmm. He does say at the beginning of the book, this is a love story, but all love stories, like most love stories, it's tragic. Oh my god, I hate, hate this so much. Later on, after we'll talk about this down the road, basically, yes. the Goldman family and the Brown family get awarded a civil civil suit. Mm-hmm. And OJ has to pay them, like a large, like each of them, like 19 point something million dollars. OJ becomes real fucking shady shit of a person. Mm-hmm. And starts doing everything in cash, starts setting up shell corporations. And so the Goldmans have to go after all of this. And a lot of people over the years have gone after the Goldmans and said, like, they've used, like, inappropriate terms. They've, like, gone after them and said that they're just money grubbers, that they're... Their fucking son and brother were, was slaughtered, was fucking slaughtered. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk... I'm going to get triggered later, too. They didn't get justice, and the only way they got justice was through a civil action. And if they do not hold him accountable by going after the money, then he gets away with it entirely. Exactly. So anytime people come at the Goldmans, send them my way. I will, I'm a nonviolent person, but I will stand in line and let them, I'll smack them with my book. because <laughs> Smack them with the OJ book? <laughs> yeah. Just, no. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But. <sighs> They fought and they got the rights to this book. So if you purchase this book or if you listen to it on Audible or anything, all of the stuff that goes for this book goes to the Goldmans. Yeah. It's the Ron Goldman Foundation for Justice. Is yeah. this is And there is an authorized version. There yes. is. I'm going to say this. Be careful because on Amazon, there are copies of the OJ OJ because they had printed 40,000. Don't you fucking buy those people. Don't you dare buy those books. Is it like the same though? Or is it different? It's missing, like, the parts where, like, she talks or she her ah. part and then, like, Pablo's part. And then there's another person at the end, Dominic Dunn, who we'll learn about in the trials. Yeah, don't give that man profits for this. Fuck that. Also, fun fact, Pablo was Nicole's neighbor. Oh, and yeah. And testified in the trial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty we'll much like all the people. Dude, oh my god, I can't. When we get to the trial, guys, holy shit, it's going to be like a long fucking thing. It probably will be like a couple of episodes. It will probably be at least like two episodes. This is just going to be like a very long series. And I really hope, I, I, I genuinely, we were talking about this off recording and like we are both really excited to do this series mm-hmm. for you guys. So hopefully y'all, y'all are here for this shit too. Oh, her name is jo- yeah. Judith Reagan. Sorry. I, oh, okay. My bad. No worries. But just so that you know, so Pablo, he's going to write it. He meets with OJ. There's some like trippy things that happen. Basically, OJ tells him this is all hypothetical. Everything I'm about to tell you, everything we're talking about when it comes to the crime. It's chapter six in the book. It's all hypothetical. In fact, it's like it's like Bundy when he was like, suppose I did do this. I would do blah, 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 blah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Same vibes. Yeah. So, but it is, it is a good book in the fact that you can kind of see why people are drawn to O.J. Simpson. And because if he believes this about himself, this is what he's projecting. Well, and let's not get it twisted. He's a charismatic, likable person because Mm -hmm. that's classic, 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 like the profile. Yeah. So, yeah. Now that I've said that, I'm going to read some excerpts of the book, the chapter six, when we get to the murders. 
But we're going to talk about June 12th, 1994. And we're going to talk about the timeline of this day. This is the day of the murder. So in the morning, OJ, whose favorite activity in the world is golf, the man cannot be stopped. He literally, there's an interview where he says, there's pretty much nothing that can stop me from golfing. Yeah. He loves it so much. He heads out to play a round of golf with his buddy, Craig Bumgarter. Gartner, Gartner, Kindergartner, Bum Gartner, who was a TV slash movie producer. And they went to the Riviera Country Club in Pacific Palisades. It was documented that he was there because he and Craig got into a little bit of a disagreement. Of course. Basically, Craig accused OJ of moving while he was teeing off at the second hole. I don't really know what that means. I know that I golf, but I don't fucking know what that means because I miss the ball and people don't care when I golf. And then apparently on the next hole, or like not that hole, the next time, OJ did the same thing. And they got into kind of a shouting match and OJ said, I might, what later when he was asked, he said, I might have told him I would kick his ass if he did it again. And also stated that they, that he and his group, his golfy pals, they get into arguments quite regularly. Also, there was noted on the wet, where I found this, the article was talking about the fact that someone said, actually, he didn't say I would kick his ass. He said I would kick his white ass. And I was just like, <laughs> OJ, stop it. <laughs> so after OJ and Craig finished, the round of golf oj goes to the clubhouse and starts playing cards and he's there until probably like mid-afternoon nicole gets up with her kids and they go shopping i think they were going toy shopping they were just like kind of out and about because mind you this is sydney's big day she has a dance recital which i found when i was doing my research i, t- I, t- I texted tara there's literally someone has a picture of it online OJ went to that dance recital and someone asked him for an autograph. And so it's like the autographed program. Mm-hmm. And I just think about like, up until that moment, OJ to the public was like, golden. Yeah. He was this retired football player turned actor who lived in Brentwood, who was like the mayor of Brentwood. You know, he was mm-hmm. known around. So, so, Basically, Nicole was getting her family ready to go. You know, she was on the phone with family and friends, basically prepping for Sydney's dance recital. Ron Goldman woke up that morning and he decided he was going to go play some softball. He went to a place, Barrington Field, which is, I guess, off Sunset Boulevard. So he spent the majority of his morning playing golf until he went home in the afternoon and got ready for work. Mm-hmm. Or he played softball. Sorry, I think I said that. In the afternoon, you may remember Tara talking about someone. Did you talk about Cato in your? No, but I think you did in part one. Yeah, Cato came yeah. up. Yes. Cato is basically this guy who lives in the back of the house. Now, according to OJ, Cato is this guy that like Nicole met skiing in Aspen. And he was basically kind of like the Manny, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. And so when Nicole moved out of one of her houses and into the Bundy condo, when she moved in there, there wasn't place for him to live. So he came and lived at one of the proper, like there's like multiple like buildings or like structures or like places to live around the Rockingham. 
there was like different pool house type things. So mm-hmm. Kato came and lived there. So OJ comes home and he and Kato have this like conversation. And he's like, I got to call Paula because Paula's all upset at me. So he calls mm-hmm. Paula, his girlfriend, Paula Barbieri. It's really interesting because like, when you hear him talk about meeting Nicole, he's like, I just saw her and she smiled and I fell in love with her. And then when he meets Paula, he was apparently up, like he was entertaining. According to him, this is in his book. Mm. According to him, he met Paula this night. Some friends came over with Paula, just like randomly was like, hey, here's Paula. But he was hanging with like some Miss Tropic Hawaiian contest winner. Mm. And like his housekeeper had to be like, uh, Mr. Simpson, there's a woman in your bedroom. Because he had like forgotten about the woman he had upstairs and was just <laughs> hanging out with Paula. Because he loved wow. her. He saw her and just loved her. But mm-hmm. Paula and the friends left. And then he went upstairs and did the deed with the Miss Hawaiian Tropics. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if he really knows what that is. So, yeah. he's just like, cool. Um, he and Paula had dated on and off. According to him, they broke up so that he and Nicole could do the whole one-year thing. And then she wasn't going to wait for him. But apparently she did. I don't really know. So, she was upset. So, anyways, Paula was upset. Because OJ was like, I got to go to this thing today of Sydney's. And she's like, oh, I want to go. And OJ was like, nah, you can't go. And Paula's like, what the fuck you mean I can't go? Why can't I go? And he's like, it's just not good. The Browns are going to be there. And she's like, the Browns know about me. The kids have met me. Like, the kids stay Mm -hmm. over when Paula's there. Which, by the way, is super hypocritical. Because OJ, like, was, like, publicly known to say that, like, Nicole wasn't allowed to have people stay at her house. Right. So it was like super hypocritical. But Paula was like super upset. So what did Miss Paula do? She was like, fuck you, OJ. And she called up on her other booze and flew to Vegas. And that boo was Mr. Michael Bolton. Mm -hmm. As in the famous singer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She literally dumped OJ and left. (laughs) She's like, bye. Peace. I'm going to go hang out with someone more famous than you. (laughs) <laughs> pretty much that's literally what she did Paula's a badass in this moment yeah <laughs> I wrote literally my notes Paula apparently has very famous boyfriends <laughs> <laughs> good for her <laughs> right so OJ basically was like talking to Kato and was like oh, you know and he also like was on the phone with other friends and was just like Paula's really mm-hmm. upset I don't know what to do blah 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 don't you worry, because that did not slow OJ down that Paula left because he called an actress by the name of Jasmine Gray. Mm-hmm. All of this is substantiated by phone records and things like that. So it's mm-hmm. not just like hearsay. Mm-hmm. So he basically, because remember, in his mind, he's just broken up with Nicole after a year. So he's back in the dating game. So he tells Kato, like, dude, Tuesday night, find me a date, line it up. Kato was like, I got you, man. Because apparently, we'll find out later, Kato knows one of the playmates. Mm-hmm. Well, so. what's her name? Paula was, was in Playboy and stuff, too, so. Right. Yes. Oh, my God. OJ is creepy. I'm with Playboy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to share it now because I'll forget it later. Uh. Basically, there. I read this article today when I was, like, looking through shit. Mm-hmm. And apparently, when OJ was in prison for, like, later in life, when he did the whole robbery yeah. thing, yeah. he had... The Kim Kardashian Playboy <gasps> pictures Ew. up in his file. Ew. This is like a rumor that was like put out there, but this is his fucking supposedly best friend's daughter. 
Yeah, like a niece. His goddaughter, from what yeah. people say. Oh my god, that is disgusting. I hope that He's is not gross. true. I hope that's. I read that because I was trying to find out, like, about the whole, like, people think that he's Chloe's dad, but she made the joke on Chelsea lately a few years ago Mm -hmm. that she fucked him. What? She made a joke. Like, she's like, people think OJ Simpson's my dad, and that wouldn't be great because we fucked once. Like, it was a joke, I think. Uh, I hope that was a joke. I really hope so, because, like, when he went to jail, she was 24. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. At about 4.30 that day, Ron Goldman clocks in for his shift at Mazzaluna Restaurant, which is an Italian restaurant in the area that the Simpson family frequented. Nicole and OJ would go together, like, with the family a lot. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Nicole was, you know, basically trying to get her kids there. So they get there at 4.30 to Paul Revere Middle School or Junior High. I don't know which way you want to say it. Mm -hmm. I've heard it both ways. For her recital, I'm assuming they had to get there a little earlier than most people because they had, like, the kid that was going to be in it. And so they get set up and everything like that. And Sydney has, like, a couple performances that day, so she's getting ready. For timeline purposes, Nicole, like I said, gets there at 4.30. Or OJ arrives 15 minutes later, and he ends up sitting behind the Brown family. The Brown family has later come out and said, like, during the performance and everything, OJ seemed, like, really irritated and was, like, upset. But there were photos that came out later of him like laughing with the Brown family and stuff like that. And so it's a little weird. But there was some tension between OJ and Nicole. OJ did not like what what Nicole was wearing. He stated several times to several different people that she looked like a teenager, that her dress was too tight, that she just looked like, you know, that kind of a girl, if you get my drift. According to his book, if I did it, OJ says he fell asleep in part of the recital, like great dadding skills. He fell asleep in the recital. But when he wakes up, he realizes that other parents have brought flowers. So OJ Mm -hmm. in his book says he left the fucking recital and then came back. But then he couldn't like sit where he was. So he ended up sitting next to a man by the name of Ron Fishman, who is a friend of his. And Ron and him were, like, seen joking and laughing together as well. Because someone, like, took pictures of him and, like, a video of him because, like, he's fucking OJ. I don't know. Like, the way I kind of think about this, Tara and I were talking about Tom Brady earlier. But it'd be like if I went to, like, Bugs Dance Recital and I looked over and I was like, oh, my God, Tom Brady's right there. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, picture, 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 picture. (laughs) Super excited about it. But, like, to myself, like, not crazy. Yeah. He says that he goes and gets her flowers, comes back, says by Ron Fishman. There was like an intermission, which apparently he gave her the flowers at intermission. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You'd think he'd keep them to the end because like, what the fuck is Sydney going to do with it? She's eight. Yeah. Ron and OJ start talking. And this, according to OJ, is where shit starts getting him in a really fucked up mood. So Ron expressed, because, okay, Nicole has this friend by the name of Faye Resnick. And we'll find it. We'll talk about her a lot, a little bit, some amount. And Faye is, Faye is a party girl. Let me be really honest. She had a Coke problem. She loved to party. And her and Nicole were friends. And so basically it gets brought up between Ron and OJ because Ron's wife, Cora, knows this, the whole group and everything. And basically what it comes down to it is Ron tells OJ, we don't know the half of what's happening and oj says in the book like the path i do know isn't good so i'm scared you know like that kind of shit 
And it just gets him thinking, like, what the fuck is Nicole up to? Mm-hmm. Like I said, the Brown family would later say that he was moody, but there were photos and videos of him, like, laughing and smiling. It was even noted that they were, like, laughing and smiling together after the performance. Sydney did her two performances and everything seemed great. But I want to point this out. People can be both. People can both be laughing and having a good time Mm -hmm. in front of their child. And then when their child isn't there, be pissed. I've seen it. For sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. I've also done it when it's like my niece and nephew be like, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. Smile through the (laughs) aggressively smile. So... After the recital, OJ and Nicole, and then also, like, Nicole's family and the kids, like, they go their separate ways. According to the book, OJ just didn't want to go to Mezzaluna, so he just didn't go to Mezzaluna. And it was an open invitation. He said he always had a standing invitation to go out to eat. But there was a little bit of a difference. When he gets home that night, he bumps into Cato again in the kitchen. I don't know why this dude just lives in OJ's kitchen. Oh, he was going, he wanted to ask OJ if he could use his jacuzzi. And OJ is like bitching about what Nicole's wearing and the fact that she wouldn't let him go to dinner and blah, blah, blah. But OJ's over here saying like, oh no, I had a standing invitation. I don't Mm, think so. No. Those stories conflict. OJ basically says to Kato, like, you can go use the jacuzzi. Kato flashes him Playboy and was like, I know this girl that's in here and shows him because I can hook you up. And of course, OJ is like, oh, I got Paula. I don't need that. But like, I'm pretty sure he was like, hook a, hook a dude up. Because it did prompt him to remember another girl. Her name was Gretchen Stockdale, and she was a former Los Angeles Raiderette. Fun fact, if you didn't know, for a time period, the Las Vegas Raiders were in L.A., that's why hmm. the song for the Oakland Raiders is from the Bay to L.A. Gotcha. Mm. But now and then they went back to the Bay. Now they're in Vegas. So good riddance. Just kidding. <laughs> I just the thing is, is, I go real hard against the Raiders. I don't actually care because my mom is a Raiders <laughs> fan. And Teradoz is like, I could harass my, my mom would just be like, all I'd have to be like is mom, the Raiders suck. And it would, <laughs> it would set my mom off. I'm just <laughs> kidding, guys. Like, I have no opinion on them. But anyway, so he calls and leaves a message and says, this is Orenthal James. And I'm finally in a place where we can be like, I'm totally, totally unattached is what the recording says. So he hits up this Raiderette and yeah, for the rest of the timeline for the night, I'm going to be a little bit more specific because we need to kind of start locking down where people are at specific times. Mm-hmm. At 9 p.m., Faye Resnick calls Nicole from her drug rehab facility because Nicole actually was pivotal in getting Faye help. She was like, you need to get into treatment because she was addicted to coke. And so she helped. So Nicole was talking to her and they were catching up. But Nicole basically tells Faye, I told OJ, get away from us. Get out of my life. You're not welcome with my family anymore. Which would make sense with what Cato was saying earlier because that would i could see where that would make someone mad like if you were out Mm -hmm. in public and someone was like get the fuck away from me and my family but i will be honest i'm very sometimes i'm very like "Mm, faye's really not the most credible Mm -hmm. witness or source at 903 kato calls his friend tom o'brien but oj comes in and asks to borrow 20 dollars for dinner because all he has according to the book all he has is hundred dollar bills and he was trying to make like change 
and Kato didn't have it. So they end up going to McDonald's. At 9.10, OJ and Kato go to McDonald's in OJ's Bentley. Kato pays. OJ eats while they're driving home. About 9.30, Ron Goldman clocks out for his shift at Mazaluna. The Brown family has gone home. They left about 8.30. But Ron hangs out. I worked in a restaurant, and sometimes you do that because you might be going out with people after work, something like this. It was a Sunday night, which is kind of like for a lot of people who work in the restaurant industry, like your Saturday, you know? Mm -hmm. So basically, at this point, Ron is done working for the day. OJ and Cato get back to Rockingham about 9.35, and Cato goes back to his, his little bungalow in the back. That was the word I was looking for earlier, bungalow. His bungalow in the back, and he leaves OJ standing by his car. Remember that where they were, where OJ mm-hmm. was. About 9.37, Nicole's mom, Judith, Judith Brown, calls Mezzaluna to report her glasses being left behind. And then she calls Nicole. Nicole calls Mezzaluna as well. She talks to two people, Karen Lee Crawford and Ron Goldman. And he said he would take the glasses with him. So he actually takes them home, changes his clothes before driving to Nicole's condo, which is about six blocks from his house. Which now that I realize how close he lives, it makes sense why he borrowed her car. Because he could like walk Mm. to her house, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. About 945, 9.50. Rosa Lopez, who later in the trial, we'll talk about later, she hears a dog barking. She hears OJ's dog barking. Now, the next part of this is coming from the book. I want to be perfect. I read this out. I want to be perfectly clear that I take what OJ put in this book as a confession. Mm -hmm. He might say it's hypothetical, but I say fuck that shit. Yes. This, for the most part, in my mind, is his confession. Okay. After Cato and OJ part ways, OJ says that he sees someone. But I'm going to read an excerpt from this first. This is OJ gets home from the from that. Mm -hmm. I was in a lousy mood after the recital. I was exhausted and not looking forward to getting on another plane. But most of all, I was upset about my brief conversation with Ron Fishman. I didn't like what Ron said about Nicole and the girls. We didn't know the half of it. And the half I did know about was bad enough, but Ron seemed to think that it was worse than either of us imagined. I also thought back to my conversation with Cora, Ron's wife, and I felt a twinge of guilt. I'd pretty much given up on Nicole, but she was still the mother of my kids. I had to do something, if not for her, for them. This is what O.J. Simpson thinks about himself. So... Basically, flash forward, there's some other little junk in this book, but basically this is what it is, is that a guy named Charlie, just so that you know, Charlie is like basically a placeholder for the other person because when Pablo interviews him in the beginning, the first thing he says is, I couldn't do this by myself. So they were like, what's the name? And he was like, oh, I don't, I'm not telling you type shit. And they came up with Charlie. So it was basically made up. So Charlie comes over and basically what he says is he was having dinner in Santa Monica and he thought he would drive over to Brentwood and say hello. I don't know how far that is, but I just imagine like going anywhere in L.A. is a nightmare. So like I just don't really believe this story that this random guy, mind you, the guy Charlie is a dude that OJ met like just a few months before. 
So he's saying that this guy that he barely knows shows up. OJ sees him. He apparently knows him well enough that he doesn't, he can see that Charlie's upset. He inquires why he's upset. And basically, OJ just has the intuition that Charlie's there to tell him something about Nicole, because this is what it says. He's like, you've got a strange look on your face, Charlie. I said, something bothering you? Charlie looked away, avoiding my eyes. It's nothing, man, he said. Come on, I said. You can tell me. He looked back at me, struggling with his thoughts. You're not going to like it, he said finally. My stomach lurched again, and right away I knew. This is about Nicole, isn't it? Charlie nodded. What about her? You're not going to like it, he repeated. Just tell me, I said, already riled, before I get pissed off. Charlie took a step back like he thought I was going to hit him or something. A couple of guys at dinner tonight, I guess they didn't know that I know you and we're friends, he began, tripping over his words. They started talking about this little trip they took to Cabo a few months back, in March, I think it was, and about the girls they partied with. It was Nicole and her friend Faye, he said. I'm listening, I said, and I tried to stay calm, but I was fit to explode. So basically, this is the all, this is all he says. He goes, there was a lot of drugs and a lot of drinking, and apparently it got pretty kinky. Why are you fucking telling me this, man? I hollered. I turned, and I had to fight the urge to put my fist through the Bentley window. I'm sorry, man. I thought you'd want to know. Well, I don't fucking want to know. I'm sick of hearing this shit. I'm sorry. That's the mother of my children. I know, man. I'm sorry. That's why I told you. I know you two have been going through a lot of shit, and I know it can't be easy. And I maybe if you talk to her, talk to her. What the fuck is wrong with you? I've been talking to her for years. She won't listen to me. She won't listen to her family. She won't listen to her friends. OJ, man, I'm not the enemy. And this is the part in this book that literally made my stomach drop out of my, like, body. I turned around, fuming. I tried to count to ten. I didn't make it. By the time I got to three, I realized that Charlie was right. He wasn't the enemy. Nicole was the enemy. This is what a fucking man is saying about the mother of his children. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say this right now. I don't give a flying fucksicle if Nicole was in Cabo, flying high, getting her freak on. Good for Nicole. They're fucking divorced. Right. Like, <laughs> Why the fuck does it matter? Was it in front of your kids? I can understand you being upset. That's probably not behavior you want your children to see, you know? But kind of doesn't sound like that's Nicole's thing. She doesn't really seem. In this no. book, OJ will make it seem like she does drugs in front of their kids. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's so blatantly obvious. He's a very do as I say, not as I do type of person. Oh, for sure. Basically, at this point, they jump in the Bronco and they drive over. And of course, you know, he doesn't know anything about what's going on. Like chart this guy, Charlie. Charlie's like, what the fuck is happening? Blah, blah, blah. They pull up in front of Nicole's condo. They see it. Charlie's like, which one is her house? He po- OJ points it out. So he put he pulls off the gloves and puts them on and he puts the ski cap on because he keeps them there in case he gets cold while, you know, golfing, which. OK, so basically, Charlie asks, what if she's with someone? She better not be. I said, not with my kids in the house. Like, what the fuck does that matter? You literally had Paula around them all the fucking time. Right. I reached into the backseat for my blue wool cap. And my gloves. I kept them there for the mornings when it was nippy on the golf course. I slipped them on. 
What the fuck are you doing, man? Charlie said. You look like a burglar. Good, I said. I reached under the seat for my knife. It was a very nice knife. A limited edition. I kept it on hand for the crazies. Los Angeles is full of crazies. Nice, huh? I said. And showing it to Charlie, check out that blade. So basically, at this point, Charlie convinces him to give the knife to him and go to talk to Nicole Sands' knife. So he goes, and he goes through the back gate, which apparently is broken, and all you have to do is push it real hard, and it opens, and it doesn't alert anyone because it's not con- it's broken to the system. Mm-hmm. OJ walks up, he sees, he looks in the house, and he sees candles. Because a 35-year-old woman could not light candles for herself and have a moment. She was playing, according to him, sensual music. Sometimes you just like a good slow jam. Maybe she's just trying to do some self-care. Like, fuck. Right. She had drawn a bath. Right. The area that Tara and I grew up in, Sunday nights was slow jam on the radio. So, like, yeah. maybe she just turned on the radio and that's what was fucking playing. hmm You know, she'd gotten home. She'd put her kids to bed. You know, she's just, you know, living her life. You're allowed to have candles in your house. You're allowed to take a bath. Fuck you, OJ. I slip past the gate into a narrow courtyard and move towards the front door. And right there, I noticed flickering lights in the window. I moved past the front door to a closer look. There were candles burning and I could hear the faint music playing. It was obvious Nicole was expecting company. I wondered who the fuck it was this time. And I wondered if maybe Faye was coming over with some of her boy toys so they could have so they get wild and dirty while my kids were upstairs sleeping. I don't think that's what was happening. No. Basically, at this point, Ron slips in and he asks, who the fuck are you? I said, uh, I, uh, I came to return a pair of glasses, he replied, stammering. Really? A pair of glasses, huh? Yes, he said, carrying an envelope. Judy left them at the restaurant. I'm a waiter at Mezzaluna. So it's Judy, is it? You're on a first name basis with Judy? At this moment, the gate behind Goldman squeaked again. Charlie walked into the narrow space. He was carrying the knife. Everything cool here, he asked. I saw this guy walking through the gate. and I just wanted to make sure there wasn't going to be any trouble. This motherfucker wants me to believe that he's here to drop off a pair of Judy's glasses, I said. I am, Goldman said, uh, appearing increasingly nervous. Yes, a dude just walked into the courtyard with a knife. I would be increasingly nervous. He held up the envelope. Look for yourself. And then what, I said. You're going to go back to the restaurant? No, he said. My shift's over, and I'm leaving these here and going home. You expect me to believe that? I don't expect you to believe anything, he said. I'm telling you the truth. You're a fucking liar, I shouted. I'm not, I swear to God. She's got candles burning inside. Fucking music playing. Probably a nice bottle of red breathing on the counter waiting for you. Not for me, Goldman protested. Fuck you, man. You think I'm fucking stupid or something? Suddenly the front door opened. And Nicole came outside. She was wearing a slinky black little cocktail dress with probably nothing much underneath. Her mouth fell open in shock. She looked at me. She looked at Goldman. She looked at Charlie beyond. Goldman was pretty well trapped. Charlie stood between him and the rear gate and I was barring his way to the front. OJ, what the fuck is going on? I turned to look at Nicole. That's what I want to know, he said. Basically, then it goes on to talk about the fact that Nicole's dog comes outside. And in the original story, he says to, pa- to Pablo, the ghostwriter, that the dog came out. The dog's name is also Cato. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> I know. I was like, do they name it after the Manny? I think that's funny if they did. They're like, we love Cato. <laughs> Cato's a dog. That, ooh, that's so mean. 
So basically, Nicole is like, oh, so basically what happens is Kato comes outside and in this first original iteration, he sees Ron and starts wagging his tail. In the book, he makes it so that the dog sees him first, wags his tail, and then goes to Ron and wags his tail. Because OJ got that pride to, you know. Mm. Yeah. So then it's they start shouting and everything like that. And, you know, Nicole is like, OJ, get out of here, leave. And basically, they're just kind of like fighting and verbally. And then according to OJ, Ron starts doing this, like, he kind of starts circling him because he was into karate and stuff. Like, and so he was like gonna attack him. And OJ actually says in the book, he said, you think you're tough, motherfucker, I said. I'm just like, this is the kind of shit you say. Mm-hmm. Then something went horribly wrong, and I know what happened, but I can't tell you exactly how. I was staring in Nicole's courtyard, of course, but for a few minutes, I don't remember how I'd gotten there. When I arrived, or even why I was there. Then he talks about how he, like, remembers the recital and all that shit, and blah, 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 blah. And then he's just, like, thinking about, like, how he went over there. And he goes, and now I'm standing in Nicole's courtyard in the dark, listening to the loud, rhythmic, accelerated beating of my own heart. I put my left hand on my heart and my shirt felt strangely wet. I looked down at myself for a few moments and I couldn't get my mind around what I was seeing. The whole front of me was covered in blood, but it didn't compute. Is this really blood? I wondered. And whose blood is it? Is it mine? Am I hurt? <laughs> Tara wow. and I just looked at each other the same way. We were like, the fuck? Sorry, <laughs> this, is, this is not a time we should be laughing because people are dead. But, you know, it's just the way he writes this. Okay. I was more as confused than ever. What the hell had happened here? And when I remembered that the Goldman guy was coming through the back gate with Judy's glasses and I remembered hollering at him and I remembered how our shouts brought Nicole to the door. Nicole, Jesus. I looked down and saw her on the ground in front of me, curled in the fetal position at the base of the stairs, not moving. Goldman was a few feet away, slumped against the bars of the fence. He wasn't moving either. Both he and Nicole were lying in giant pools or in giant pools of blood. I had never seen so much blood in my life. It didn't seem real. None of it computed. What the fuck happened here? Who had done this? And why? And where the fuck was I when this shit went down? This is literally what he's writing in his book, people. Yeah. That he's basically saying that he went into a fuke state. He disassociated and completely murdered two people and then came to and was like, why the fuck is my shirt wet? Like, you can't write this kind of shit. It's just, it's like, it's so detailed. Mm Mm-hmm. Bro. Right. He went on to say, it was like part of my life was missing. Like, there was some weird gap in my existence. But how could that be? I was standing right here. That was me, right? I looked down at myself and my blood-soaked clothes and noticed the knife in my hand. The knife is covered in blood as were my hands and my wrist and half of my right forearm. That didn't compute either. I wonder how I'd gotten the blood all over the knife and again asked myself whose blood it might be. And all of a sudden it not made perfect sense. This was a bad dream. A very bad dream. Any minute now, I would wake up at home in my own bed, starting to go about my day. And then I heard a sound and I turned, startled. Charlie was standing in the shadows a few feet away, his mouth hanging open, his breathing short and ragged. He was looking beyond me at the bodies. Charlie, I called out. 
He didn't answer. Charlie, still nothing. I went over and stood in front of him and said, Charlie, what the fuck happened here? OJ will go on in the book to say that he takes off all his clothes except for his socks and that he like ditches them nearby, I guess, or some shit like that. Now we're going to go back to the timeline that we know because it could be substantiated. Mm-hmm. At 10.10, Cato is in the guest house and he calls a friend named Rachel. At 10.15, Nicole's neighbor hears a dog barking. This is where they believe it's Nicole's dog, Cato. And they also believe this is the time of the murders. It's 10.15. At 10.30, Nicole's neighbor, Steve Schwab, starts to take his dog for a walk. A little before that, at 10.22, the limo driver, Alan Park, arrives at Rockingham to take OJ to the airport because he has to go to Chicago because he has a trip, like a solo or a golf thing with Hertz. At this point in time, about 10.40, Park, or Alan, pulls up to Rockingham and tries several times to get like a response and nothing happened. When he pulled up to Rockingham, it was said later that he, when he told police that he didn't see anything, like he didn't see the Bronco. And so at 1040, I get it. You get there early, you wait, you turn around. So then he's like buzzing because they need to go. At about this time at 1040, 1045, Cato is still on the phone with Rachel, but he hears a thump on the wall near the air conditioning. And it's like loud enough and strong enough that it shakes pictures. Damn. That's what Cato had told the police that night. He told the detective who we'll talk about next time or one of these times. <laughs> in a future episode. <laughs> in a future episode. That. At this point in time... The limo driver is trying to get a hold of OJ. OJ isn't responding, so he calls his Mm -hmm. boss. The boss then tries to call OJ. Nobody's answering. And then he sees, he can kind of see into the back, and he sees Cato, and he sees what he describes as a tall African-American figure Mm -hmm. walking out. And so So we know that basically Cato had heard a noise and that OJ Mm -hmm. was like, going with him to investigate the noise. Mm. At this point in time, remember the guy that was walking the dog? Mm. He basically, Stephen finds Nicole's dog. Like, out? Yes. Yes. I I have stuff on that for next time. Okay. I was, mm-hmm. okay. Like, if you want to, like, give them an overview, that's fine. I have, like, kind of... The, the dog shuffle and all that shit, if you want me to talk about that. Okay. Time. I was just going to say, he basically finds the dog, takes it home, yeah. and then they're going to go mm-hmm. out later and, and look for mm-hmm. the owner. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, Cato lets the limo in so that he can start loading up OJ's stuff. It's about 10.56. 11.01, OJ comes out. They load the limo. They basically look for the intruder one more time. They can't find it. Then Mm -hmm. they leave for the airport by like 11.10. And then later, Stephen takes Nicole's dog and basically takes them to Nicole. Mm -hmm. OJ gets to the airport or he leaves for Chicago on flight 668 on American Airlines flight 668 at 11.45. 666. That'd be insane. I don't think they do that. (laughs) I don't think they do either. But basically at this point in time, Tara's going to go into it, but they basically, about 
12, 10 p.m. or a.m. at this point, they find Nicole and Ron and call the police. And that is where we're going to end this episode, because Jesus Christ, this is one of the longest episodes we've done in a while. Long time. Yeah. And they're probably going to keep being hefty. Yeah, this is a Tara's next one is quite hefty as well. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode and we will be back (laughs) on Thursday for another one of these. So yeah, we'll see you then, guys. Bye. Bye.